Welcome to Doings of Doyle, a podcast dedicated to the works of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the creator of Professor Challenger, Brigadier Gerard, and of course, Sherlock Holmes. I'm Mark Jones. And I'm Paul Chapman. And together we'll be exploring Doyle's eclectic bibliography to understand more about the great man's life and work. We'll be discussing his fiction and non-fiction, the well-known and the obscure. And stopping by Baker Street along the way. You can find out more at doingsofdoyle.com or follow us at doingsofdoyle on Twitter. Today we're going to be talking about The Captain of the Pole Star, a gothic tale penned by Conan Doyle in mid-1882 and frequently reprinted throughout his life. It's the claustrophobic story of an Arctic voyage and the fate of its titular captain. Now, we wouldn't normally give spoiler warnings for stories that are about 140 years old, but if you haven't read this one, it's well worth um, stopping the podcast now and picking up a copy and getting stuck in. You don't want to have the story ruined by our witterings for the next 45 minutes. So before we get stuck into the story, um, Paul, perhaps you could give us a quick introduction. The Pole Star is a whaling ship, operating late into the Arctic season. Its crew is restive, its captain certain there are whales yet to be found, but time is running short and the ice is closing in. The story is narrated via the journal of the ship's young doctor, John McAllister Ray, who charts the vagaries of the weather and the surrounding environment, the moods of the crew, and the erratic mental state of Captain Nicholas Craigie, an experienced whaler who appears to be on the brink of incipient breakdown. The encroaching ice and unpredictable commander are not the crew's only concerns. The Pole Star also appears to be haunted. Since leaving Shetland, it has been followed by eerie cries and an occasionally glimpsed presence, a presence which seems closely linked to Captain Craigie. Trapped in a beautiful but deadly environment, with an unstable captain in the grip of mysterious forces, the Doctor and crew can do little but watch, wait, and react to events as they unfold. And that really gives you a sense, if you haven't already read the story, why you should pause at this point and go off and find a copy. So we'll start by talking a bit about the writing and publication history. It's actually uh, a story that's based on Conan Doyle's personal experience of a voyage on an Arctic whaler called The Hope, and we'll come to that in a little bit. We don't actually know when the story was written, but we think it was probably around mid-1882, which would be around the same time as Conan Doyle wrote The Winning Shot, which was featured in our previous podcast. So at this point in time in his life, he'd left the employee of George Budd and had set up in practice at Southsea. And it was towards the end of that year that he received 10 guineas for the story uh, from Temple Bar, uh, which was an awful lot of money at the time, I think, contemporary accounts would be about 60 times that so it's about six thousand yeah, pounds for particularly for a, a, a young you know, starting author so he's received quite a bit of money for this and it comes at a really important time in his life because actually he's he's struggling at this time for for money and you know th- he's still sending money back to the family in edinburgh um, but this gives him a bit of a shot in the arm and a bit of an encouragement to keep going yes yeah, so it's a story he, he seems to have been um particularly proud of, and quite rightly so. It shows a, a marked increase in, in uh, his maturity of style. And it also, a few years later, became the title story of, of Conan Doyle's first actual official collection of short stories, which was uh, um, entitled The Captain of the Pole Star and Other Tales, published by Longmans in uh, March 1890. Um, unfortunately, something of the, uh, of the glamour of this was, was, was taken off um, by a previous publisher of his, James Hogg, 
who issued at the same time an unofficial uh, mm. compilation of, of stories which he had the um, the ownership of uh, called Mysteries and Adventures. Despite this, um, Doyle was was certainly very proud of having uh, the Captain of the Pole Star and other stories kind of launching his career as 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 a, an official short story writer with his name on the spine of a book. Yes, because I I think it had appeared very briefly in a three-volume anthology of ghost stories called Dreamland and Ghostland, which was published by George Redway. Yeah, very, very odd collection. A number of of Conan Doyle stories in that, together with various uh, Victorian sort of standard uh, supernatural stories and a lot Mm. of those um, of, of anonymous authorship. Yes, anonymous authorship being one of his beefs at the time. That um, Captain of the Polestar and other stories in 1890, that's um, dedicated to Major General Drayson as well, who we, come, who we might come across a bit later. Yes, another, another one of the, the important figures in, in Doyle's uh, march towards uh, eventual spiritualist conversion. Hmm. So we've mentioned previously as well about um, the fact that this is based heavily on Conan Doyle's life experience as ship surgeon on an Arctic whaler called the Hope, in 1880. So, Paul, can you tell us a bit more about um, about the Hope? Yeah, with the Hope, it's um, a job which accidentally came to Conan Doyle. Um, mm. It was a fellow student of his uh, called Claude Curry had actually signed on as the the surgeon. He'd served as a surgeon on a previous uh, whaling expedition. Uh, couldn't do this one, um, so he asked Conan Doyle if if he wanted to take his place. Uh, Doyle, always on the lookout for new experience and adventure, seems to have, have taken on the uh, the idea of the job straight away. Um, and the two pounds ten shillings a week uh, mm-hmm. will have helped to persuade him, together with a share of the oil money mm. um, from the um, from the expedition. And this is quite late in the whaling industry, I think. At this point in time, the whaling industry is still going, but it's it's on the wane. But he serves with the Greys, I think it is, isn't it? The Greys. Yes, the, the the Grey brothers. Yeah, and they were one of the foremost families in the whaling industry at the time. And so he's taken on board the Hope and serves for about seven months? Uh, yeah, he's, he's there. They, um, they sail on the 28th of February and uh, return on the 11th of August. And we're really lucky in this respect in that Conan Doyle kept a journal of his time on the Hope, which has subsequently been reprinted. There's a volume called Dangerous Work, Diary of an Arctic Adventure, which came out from British Library in 2012, edited by John Lullenberg and Daniel Stashauer. And it's uh, it's a beautiful book in and of itself. It's a it's a full reproduction of the the journal plus and a transcribed and annotated version. Um, not that you particularly need it with Conan Doyle's handwriting; yeah. it's so precise and neat. But it's really really helpful to have it. And that volume also includes um, the Captain of the Pole Star and the Adventure of Black Peter from the Sherlock Holmes mm-hmm. canon. It's a lovely volume. And the, the other delight you you get with that is it reproduces uh, many of Conan Doyle's own sketches. Mm. Uh, and shows uh, very much, although not a trained artist, you can see he has some of the um, he's inherited some of the natural talent of of, of the uh, the artists in his own family, including, of course, his father Charles, uh, his grandfather uh, John Doyle, and his famous uncle Richard Doyle. Yes, he's actually quite good. They, there's a lovely um, couple of illustrations of the Hope itself, um, that's and and of the wildlife actually. Yeah, that look mm. really good. And the experience on the Hope informs some of Conan Doyle's non-fiction writing as well. So he gives a paper on 
the life of an Arctic whaler? Uh, yeah, he actually, um, it, it's, it's a bit later on. He, he, his lecture was entitled The Arctic Seas. Oh, that's it. Um, it was presented to the Portsmouth Literary and Scientific Society on the 4th of December, 1883. Uh, in, in this, he, he discussed some of his own experiences, but also discussed the, um, the, the general topic of, of uh, the attempt to reach the, the North Pole, uh, various expeditions that had been made, and, and the North Pole itself hadn't yet been reached. It was going to be reached um, in, in 1909, uh, by Peary, or there's still controversy about that. Mm. Um, but th- this this was his his general theme. Um, and he also comments at the time, before the lecture, he went round Portsmouth and, and uh, collected specimens from various taxidermists. Uh, and <laughs> this gave him the reputation throughout Portsmouth of being a great sportsman as well, because people assumed all these stuffed creatures were things that he had <laughs> shot himself uh, during the Hope Expedition. Uh, the, the the lecture he delivered in uh, 1883 seems to have um, reappeared in, in in a polished and published form several years later uh, as an article uh, entitled The Glamour of the Arctic, mm. uh, which appeared in The Idler for July 1892. Now, this story has quite a rich literary hinterland. There are quite a number of literary influences on the story, the most obvious of which is probably Coleridge's poem The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, written towards the end of the 18th century. And that's influential in two respects, because not only is there, are there elements of that story that are echoed within the captain of the Pole Star, the rhyme of the Ancient Mariner also influenced Edgar Allan Poe. And Poe's The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket, his only complete novel, which was written in 1838, does share a number of similarities to Conan Doyle's Pole Star. Um, it's also a novel that influenced um, people like uh, Melville from Moby Dick in 1851 and Verne, for Journey to the Centre of the Earth in 1864. The ending of Pym is something worth considering because it, it ends on a very abrupt note and lots of contemporaries commented on, on, on this fact, but the ending has some broad similarities with Polestar. The end of Pym actually takes the form of a journal with diary entries for, for the very last few paragraphs. Uh, and of course, the captain of the Polestar is written entirely as diary entries. At the end of the captain of the Polestar, Captain Craigie is found dead on the ice, a, a ghostly snow-like apparition hanging over over the body. And at the end of Pym, uh, Pym encounters a white shrouded figure at the end of the world, really, at the, uh, as they're approaching the South Pole. Yeah, yeah. The white figure appears earlier in Polestar as well. Um, when um, Manson who's the second mate, uh, encounters the ghost on the ice. Running round a hummock, I came right onto the top of it, standing and waiting for me, seemingly. I don't know what it was. It wasn't a bear, anyway. It was tall and white and straight. And if it wasn't a man nor a woman, I'll stake my davy it was something worse. This seems to reflect the uh, the, the figure in, uh, in Pym as well, which is described as a shrouded human figure, very far larger in proportions than any dweller among men. And the hue of the skin of the figure was the perfect whiteness of the snow. Mm. In Polestar, Conan Doyle is also pulling on other famous stories of the sea. Melville, Captain Marriott, Clark Russell, who, of course, is referenced as one of uh, Watson's favourite writers Mm. in the Sherlock Holmes stories. Probably the biggest influence out of all of those is Moby Dick by Melville, because... Um, you know, obviously, it features a, 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 a similarly insane captain relentlessly pursuing doom at the expense of his crew, and also the uh, the, the the preponderance of white 
and mm. white as, as a symbolic color or non-color in, in Moby Dick is, is, is very, uh, very strong. And Conan Doyle is also drawing on polar literature as well, most notably Shelley's Frankenstein from 1818. Yeah, Frankenstein is, is um, a definite and important influence uh, upon this. Uh, it's interesting that on uh, Sunday, March the 28th, 1880, uh, in um, Conan Doyle's journal, uh, From the Hope, uh, he talks about a dinner table conversation, uh, which, which, as he put it, turned upon politics, the North Pole, Darwinism, Frankenstein, free trade, whaling and local matters. Mm. So he and um, certainly uh, a number of the officers seem to have been familiar with Frankenstein. Uh, Frankenstein is, is regarded as a significant entry in, in the annals of, of polar literature because of the, the framing device of, of the novel, uh, in, which features um, Captain Robert Walton, an explorer who um, is, is attempting both to reach the North Pole and to find the legendary Northwest Passage. And it's while his, his ship is, is frozen in ice that he, he suddenly meets Victor Frankenstein, who, who appears from nowhere on this, this sledge, mm. uh, and discusses his own form of mad ambition with, with, with Walton. Frankenstein has gone through a standard uh, scientific training in many ways, and Walton uh, also trained himself uh, ready, ready to head northwards by becoming a, a crew member on, on a whaler. And he says, I accompanied the whale fishers on several expeditions to the North Sea. I voluntarily endured cold, famine, thirst and want of sleep. I often worked harder than the common sailors during the day and devoted my nights to the study of mathematics, the theory of medicine and those branches of physical science from which a naval adventurer might derive the greatest practical advantage. Twice, I actually hired myself as an undermate on a Greenland whaler and, acquainted, and acquitted myself to admiration. So um, Walton has learned the rudiments of, of, uh, of whaling. And there's another connection here which we might pick up when we talk about the ending, the notion that um, Victor Frankenstein is pursuing absolution. And within the Journal of the Hope, we get a tantalising glimpse of what might be a missing Conan Doyle story. Uh, yes, um, in an entry uh, that he makes on Wednesday, March the 1st, uh, he comments that, I started a story, a journey to the pole, which I intend to be good. There doesn't seem to be any um, surviving manuscript of this, this story, uh, but elements of it may have entered into uh, The Captain of the Pole Star. Um, although he may have also have been uh, writing some sort of adventure story uh, influenced by, by his reading, perhaps, of, of um, Jules Verne's The Adventures of Captain Hatteras, which he probably read at, at school. He certainly read a lot of um, Verne's books mm. in French mm. uh, when he was at school in Stonyhurst. Um, and The Adventures of Captain Hatteras is a two-volume uh, story, in the first volume of which is entitled The English at the North Pole. Mm. Let's talk a bit about some of the real-world influences on the story. We've obviously covered the Hope Expedition, but there's also the Franklin Expedition. And um, we know that Conan Doyle was familiar with the Franklin Expedition, not least because there's entries in the, um, in the Hope Journal. Yes, um, Captain Alexander Murray of the Windward, which was one of the, the ships, um, or kind of sister ships to the Hope, uh, had served uh, as a young man, as, as a searcher for the disappeared Franklin expedition, under Sir John Ross. Uh, and he may have given Conan Doyle some first-hand background information uh, about the, uh, the expedition, the searches, and, and the, uh, the conditions they encountered. 
And you spotted a possible name connection here as well. Yes, when you look at the um, the narrator of Captain of the Pole Star, he is Dr. John McAllister Ray, spelt R-A-Y. Uh, one of the leading Franklin searchers uh, was a surgeon from the Hudson's Bay Company called Dr. John Ray, but this time spelt R-A-E. There's another real-world influence in here which is very, very fleetingly referenced. One of the things about Captain Craigie, one of the tangible suggestions is that he actually served at one point in the Russo-Turkish War, uh, 1877-78. Yeah, um, the the Russo-Turkish War, although it didn't directly involve Great Britain, uh, was of of great interest because it it was um, part of the reason behind the war was was Russia's uh, ambitions to uh, to have a port in the Mediterranean and they had their eyes on on uh, Constantinople um so there was agitation in Britain um and and this was a time of of a heightened feeling of Russophobia um and Conan Doyle himself was caught up in this uh, and he says in Memories and Adventures his his autobiography um, I may say that late in that same year, which was 1878, I did volunteer as a dresser for the English ambulances sent to Turkey for the Russian war and was on the Red Cross list, but the collapse of the Turks prevented my going out. Uh, the war ground to a, to a halt um, and, and Britain did play its part in, in, uh, in, the, in the peace conference. But as I've said, Britain was uh, at one point possibly prepared to enter and it, it actually added a word to the English language in the form of jingoism um, mm. because a famous music hall song from the time... <laughs> Uh, written by G.W. Hunt and performed by G.H. McDermott, had the line, We don't want to fight, but by jingo, if we do, we've got the ships, we've got the men, we've got the money, too. (laughs) So the Captain of the Pole Star is an example of polar literature, but it's also more commonly known as an example of the ghost story. And it has a real feeling of uh, homage to the early romantic ghost stories of people like Shelley and Coleridge, Oliphant and Dickens, but... You think that there might also be some connections to some contemporary writers of Conan Doyle? Yes, I, I think Doyle, uh, in many ways, is, is is moving in a different direction with with the ghost story, with with uh, with this particular tale. Uh, his his first written story, which which was never actually published, I think written sometime probably in the, in the the mid to late eighteen seventies, uh, was a piece called The Haunted Grange of Gorsthorpe, yeah. which was a, a pretty standard uh, haunted house story. With the captain of the Pole Star, he moves in a different direction. Uh, You're getting a ghost story which which turns the conventions of the haunted house story on its head, and the ghost is actually more associated with with the wilderness outside rather than with the claustrophobic environs of the ship itself. Uh, And in this, he's kind of looking towards the way um, certain supernatural writers would, would, would take the ghost story um, in, in this direction. I'm thinking of people like uh, Algernon Blackwood with his yeah. stories The Willows and The Wendigo or Arthur Macken uh, with tales like the, the, the story of The Black Seal uh, and then on to H.P. To Lovecraft with his um, visions of, of the haunted landscape of, of his imagined New England. Uh, Lovecraft himself actually commented on the Captain of the Pole Star and said in his uh, essay Supernatural Horror in Literature uh, Doyle now and then struck a powerfully spectral note as in The Captain of the Pole Star, a tale of Arctic ghostliness. But Doyle also, with this, it's not just the, 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 the landscape element, he also makes this more of a psychological ghost story. We do know it's not just in Craigie's head, because other crew members experience it, yes. but there's a lot of it is going yeah. on in Craigie's head. 
so you, you're also looking towards um, contemporary ghost stories uh, like uh, Henry James's The Turn of the Screw uh, and The Phantom Rickshaw by Rudyard Kipling. Yes. Conan Doyle could also be terribly flippant about um, ghosts. I mean, he wrote a, a very silly short story, which is very entertaining, called Selecting a Ghost. Which, which it, it again uses that name, the, 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 the Grange of Gorsethorpe. Yeah. And that's the one where there's a man's inherited a house and, and he's displeased to discover that there isn't a resident ghost. So hires an agency that can procure a ghost for him, I think it is, isn't it? Yes, um, which, and they, they interview the ghosts to see which one will be most suitable. Which is essentially, sounds like the plot of um, Rent-A-Ghost, I think. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So you make the point that Conan Doyle is really experimenting with the ghost story here, and that's perhaps something that singles it out um, for H.P. Lovecraft. He's also, um, he draws on one of his own favourite ghost stories, uh, Bulwer Lytton's uh, The Haunted and the Haunters uh, from 1859, one of the classic haunted house stories, but also has a very strong um, theoretical occult element as well. Yeah, and Conan Doyle is really using the location as part of, uh, almost as another character within the story. A bit like Dartmoor becomes in The Hound of the Baskervilles, um, the, the Arctic setting is almost another character in and of itself within the Captain of the Polestar. Well, what he does in, in both stories, uh, Polestar and, and the Hound, is, is he takes uh, a wilderness environment, uh, which is also a working environment. Mm. So uh, the, the Arctic seas, the, the, there is this, this great loneliness element, but you've also got whalers uh, and explorers going up and down the, this, this environment. And similarly with Dartmoor, it isn't just this abandoned wilderness. No. There, are, there are people working on it. But what Doyle does he, is he takes the, these environments and he, he, he takes the people out almost yes, uh, and, and turns them into these, these eerie, otherworldly locations. Part of where his brilliance lies is, is with both these locations in particular, he knew them both well. Yeah. So the Arctic of the Captain of the Pole Star is an experienced Arctic. It, yes. It's not like Mary Shelley who, who is, is, is imagining the, the, the environment. He's been there and he's able to use that reality and thus heighten unreality. And that nicely brings us on to the quality of the writing, because one of the things that really does single out the Captain of the Polestar, in comparison to other uh, polar literature, is the authenticity. Um, this is a, a really feels like a lived environment. He's really drawing on his personal experiences on the Hope, his description of the Arctic landscape, and also those lovely little details. He describes the wildlife and little uh, peculiarities of life on ship, um, things like the use of the Church of England uh, prayer book when most of the people on the ship were uh, Roman Catholic or Presbyterians, things that he would have actually seen uh, on the Hope. And that ha lends a completely different character to the narrative in comparison to something like um, uh, Pym by Poe, because um, that, that does feel uh, much more artificial. This is part of the the maturing of, of, of Conan Doyle as an artist and, and, and a craftsman, is this use he's making of his own experience. Mm. Uh, it, it's astonishing uh, to, uh, to think that uh, the winning shot and the Captain of the Pole Star are both produced at the same sort of time. Um, the, the, the Captain of the Pole Star shows uh, a definite growth of maturity. Um, and and it, is, it is when Doyle uses... Uh, an experience that's, that's, that's very close to his own his own life. He does a similar thing um, in in a study in Scarlet, where he didn't know London, but he uses his experience of Edinburgh to create yes. a, a convincing London. Yeah, that's right. 
And that's a really good point. I mean, Conan Doyle actually wrote a short poem called Advice to a Young Author later in life, which um, encouraged um, aspiring writers to draw on their real-life experiences, such as that of The Hope. Uh, the poem goes, First begin taking in, cargo stored, all aboard. Think about giving out, empty ship, useless trip. Um and that's actually quoted in, in Dangerous Work. And there are another couple of aspects to the to the writing of The Captain of the Polestar that really stood out to me. The first was um, the fact that Conan Doyle is so good at creating this impending sense of doom because he actually lays out three separate dangers that are um, that the crew are exposed to. You have the fact that it's late in the whaling season and so there's risk of the, the ice pack closing in on the ship and in fact that happens over the course of the story so you have the encroaching ice at one side you have the apparent madness of the captain and potentially the madness of the crew but also the crew's reaction to mm -hmm. the captain there's a sense in which there's a uh, a mutiny um uh, it's a co the... communicable panic and fear yeah absolutely mm -hmm. and then you've got the ghost itself so you have these three different um uh, threats and the really clever thing that Conan Doyle does is he's building those threats all the time and they feed off each other. The other thing that he does really well I think is the depiction of both um, Craigie and John McAllister Ray. John McAllister Ray we'll probably cover a bit when we talk about Sherlockian connections because it's about a, a, a doctor as a narrator but Craigie himself is a really fascinating figure. He's set up by Conan Doyle as a very distant um, and aloof captain, quite different to the captain of the Hope. He has this secret past, um, which we come to realise disguises the tragedy of, of his fiancée's death. And he has this death wish as well, um, but he won't actually commit suicide. And so there's a sense in which he is this Ahab-like figure who is going to take people with him as he pursues his own, uh, yeah, his own ends. We don't get to learn a huge amount about him, but we get lots of interesting clues. And Craigie comes off the page as being a very real character um, well, 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 one thing that uh, is surprisingly real about Craigie as a character is is um, is his intelligence he's, he's yeah. described by Ray as remarkably well read and having the power of expressing his opinion forcibly without appearing to be dogmatic and this when you read um, Conan Doyle's own journal from the hope is the sort of character he seems to have encountered in, in the various captains, um, both David Gray and John Gray, that they, they seem to have had very, very um, serious discussions ab about uh, political and, and cultural topics. These weren't just old salty sea dogs. <laughs> these these were, were, were intelligent men. Conan Doyle is talking about Captain David Gray, um, who entered into a critical analysis of Goethe's Faust, Comparing it with some of Shakespeare's plays, so we are not altogether barbarous up here. Yeah, absolutely. And actually, you get a sense in which Craigie is similarly well-read. There's a, an important passage that actually relates to spiritualism, where the captain and uh, John McAllister Ray are talking about um, the soul and uh, the persistence of the soul after death. And Craigie appears to be a follower of the principles of Aristotle and Plato and has a leaning for metempsychosis. Metempsychosis being the idea of the transmission of, of the soul um, of a human being into an animal or another person after death. And uh, it, it appears in other works by Edgar Allan Poe, such as Metzengerstein in 1832, which is a short story about uh, a family feud in which... Uh, 
uh, a member of a family is reincarnated in in a horse. Um, it's actually a really great great short story that, um, and it also goes on to inspire other works. More more uh, contemporary one for us is um, Pullman's his Dark Materials. There's a sense in which that that actually carries through into the idea of the demons, where mm-hmm. an individual has their soul as a as an entity outside of their their own body, mm-hmm. and the um, two are connected. And H.P. Uh, Lovecraft as well very probably influenced by Poe's interest in the subject, uh, features the, this this uh, in several of his stories, uh, but most particularly in the, the thing on the doorstep. Yeah. And so, picking up again on the connection to our previous podcast, to The Winning Shot, you know, this is written around the same time as The Winning Shot, we think, and again, there was a casual mention of spiritualism within that um, story as well. In both cases, the central um, figure of interest, Craigie in Polestar and uh, Gaster in um, The Winning Shot argue a spiritualist position but are the ones that are felt to be unhinged or are um, uh, in some way questionable and um, Conan Doyle's narrators are taking the rationalist view in both of those in both of those cases in reverse to what would actually happen with, with Conan Doyle within his own life. Yes, because you have the, the actual reference in, in Polestar to... Um to uh, Doctor, or so-called Doctor Henry Slade, mm. uh, a famous slate-writing medium who was who was caught out more than once, um, but Craigie defends him um, mm. where, when Ray made some joking allusion to the imposture of Slade. Uh, Craigie warns him not to confuse the innocent with the guilty, uh, and although Slade was caught out several times um, later on in his history of spiritualism, Conan Doyle makes some defence of him, but he does hedge his bets. Yes, it's a little, it's a little lukewarm as a defence. Um, he says, uh, if one is forced to admit that while there was an overwhelming preponderance of psychic results um, by Slade, there was also a residuum which left the unpleasant impression that the medium might supplement truth with fraud. Hardly a ringing endorsement. Not really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so let's talk a bit about some of the Sherlockian connections with the Captain of the Polestar. And it's fair to say that really the connections between the Sherlockian canon and uh, the Captain of the Polestar are really connections to the source material of both, which is, um, which is the Journal of, of the Hope rather than to, um, to the Polestar story itself. The most obvious connection to the Hope is the adventure of Black Peter, which centres on the murder of a fiendish uh, former whaling captain Peter Carey, who is famously pinned to the wall of his uh, cabin uh, with a harpoon. I think the phrase is stuck like a beetle on a card. And he does conform to the crusty sea dog sort of uh, character. He does. And actually, the person who murders him is a harpooner. Another crusty sea Another dog. Another crusty sea dog. <laughs> um, who set sail from Dundee, which might be a, a little bit of a... It's a bit of a dig. <laughs> it's a bit of a dig because, because um, Conan Doyle set sail from Peterhead um, and the Peterhead and the Dundee whalers were, uh, were rivals. So it might be a bit of a sly dig there. One of the obvious similarities is that the narrator of The Captain of the Polestar is a doctor. Uh, it's drawing on Conan Doyle's personal experience after all. Ray himself is an arch-materialist as Conan Doyle regarded himself as being in the in the uh, early 1880s. And it does mean that for parts of the story, he doesn't seem to really know what is going on around him. Um, there are lots of clues building up, and, um, and Ray can 
at times appear a bit like the stereotypical Watson and not quite following what is actually going on around him. Although he does get to do his own bit of detective work around the um, the Russo-Turkish war. Mm. And, and part of it is a refusal to accept what's going on around yeah, him. Yeah, absolutely. He doesn't, he doesn't want to accept mm. what's going on, mm. even down to the, the final encounter with the figure. Yeah, the he's he's the, figure. the only one of the crew who will say it's snow. Yes. So he remains an arch materialist towards the end. And there's one other Watson-related connection to the story of the hope, in that the penultimate entry of Conan Doyle's journal features a discussion about uh, news from Afghanistan. And what's actually been referenced at that point in time is news of the Battle of Maywand, which, of course, features heavily in the in the backstory of... Um, of uh, Dr. Watson. Uh, yes, this, this ties into the whole mood of the, the late 1870s. Great Britain had avoided uh, direct involvement in the Russo-Turkish War, um, which finished in 1878, um, but had their own uh, war against the Afghans in 1878 through to 1880, the Second mm. Afghan War, which was partly brought about by fears of, of, of Russian incursions into Afghanistan. So, again, we get that, that whole um, feeling of, of Russophobia. Yes. Um, Probably the most interesting direct connection between the Pole Star and um, the Sherlock Holmes canon, though, comes in the postscript to the story. So at the end, we discover a bit more about Captain Craigie's history and background in that he had a fiancée who died upon the Cornish coast under circumstances of peculiar horror. Um, Sherlock Holmes fans will be very familiar with The Devil's Foot, a story which Holmes himself recalled to Watson as the Cornish horror. So why Conan Doyle associates Cornwall with horrific deaths, I'm not entirely sure. I don't think there's anything in his biography that would suggest uh, there is anything personal. One of the other things that's really nice about The Captain of the Polestar is that not everything is given to you on a plate, and actually you leave the story not being entirely clear as to what has happened or what the motivation is, or or indeed Craigie's involvement in the demise of his fiancée. Um, there are different ways in which you can, you can read this story, and uh, there's obviously a long tradition of people being haunted to their deaths for a past wrong, but do we actually think that Craigie has committed some wrong um, or is there an instant explanation? Uh, yes, it is. It is quite um, shrouded uh, what what has gone on in in Craigie's past, and his his attitude towards the um, the apparition itself is is very mixed. It seems to be a, a, a mixture of of fear and and desire. At one point, Ray um, is watching him as he seems to have seen the apparition and, and says of Craigie, he was staring out over the ice with an expression in which horror, surprise and something approaching to joy were contending for the mastery. Mm, and you get mirroring of that when Ray hears the cry of the ghost at one point where it is is a shriek of horror but it's also of exultation. So there's quite a strange relationship between... Um, the apparition and Craigie, you know, you could you could read it that he's quite horrified at the beginning when he hears when Craigie hears news that the ship was being pursued out of Shetland. He does seem to be fearful that an apparition is is coming, but but towards the end, it's very clear that he wants to be reunited with this spirit. But whether or not he was actually complicit in um, the death of his fiance is 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 left. To the reader to to decide. Personally, I don't think Craigie was involved in his fiancée's death, or at least the guilt he feels is perhaps because he wasn't around when she needed him. 
Um, and I think you can read this as a rather more romantic tale of two individuals, which you also see in other um, Conan Doyle works like The Ring of Thoth. And, and he does this again um, in, in another story, which we'll uh, probably come on to in a future podcast, uh, John Barrington Cowles. Yes. Uh, but it's done in a very anti-romantic way in that yes. story. Yeah. There are actually two endings to this story, though, really, aren't there? Because there's what happens to Craigie and uh, the apparition and, uh, you know, our interpretation of what happens there. But there's also this very peculiar postscript the one that references the Cornish horror. And the postscript is provided by John McAllister Ray's father. In a similar way to The Winning Shot, where there is a postscript that's provided by Lottie Underwood's mother, we actually have the narrator's father providing the postscript at this point in time, which begs the question, what happened to John McAllister Ray? Yeah, it's very odd, the the question of the the postscript, because it it feels tacked on. Yeah. Not quite forced, but it, it's almost as if uh, Conan Doyle felt that he had to round off the story in 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 some way and and give some form of explanation uh, rather than than leave the story hanging. And and in some ways, this almost forced explanation, which is only half an explanation anyway, mm. um, is is one of the few things that can be seen to detract from the the story. Yes, I mean, I would have quite happily ended it with the um, Ray discounting the, the, the ghost in a sort of slightly half-hearted way or unconvinced way. Yeah. Um, you don't necessarily need the postscript. And it, it's, um, it's this idea we, we don't know what's happened to Ray. Is, is he dead? The idea isn't really given at any point in the story. And, and usually, if you're going to have that sort of um, epilogue, you'd usually um, start the story with something like n- notes from the Journal of... Yes. John McAllister Ray, yes. instead of launching straight into the story. Yeah, yeah. So that brings us to the end of The Captain of the Polestar. If you want to find out a bit more about the story, um, please go to doingsofdoyle.com where you can get the show notes or follow us at Doings of Doyle on Twitter. And please pass on any comments, suggestions, questions, and we'll try to get back to you. Next time we're staying on the maritime theme and we're um, featuring a story from 1914. And we're going underwater with danger. Conan Doyle's semi-prophetic take on the use of unrestricted submarine warfare in the war that was to come. Excellent. So do join us next time. In the meantime, goodbye. Goodbye. Um, Sherlock Holmes fans will be very familiar with The Devil's Foot a story which Holmes himself recalled to Watson as the Cornish horror. Um, But why Conan Doyle associated Cornwall with... um, Alarms. Alarms. (laughs)